I'm picking up the Reflections of Splendor series, God is One. I think it's the second one. And we're going to get into it in a moment. I'm just going to pray because I'm so aware that when we're talking about God, uh, I'm aware of my own weakness and frailty. We need his Holy Spirit's help. So let's just pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the wonderful truths revealed in your word. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would open our eyes this morning to see something of your glory, something of the revelation of what you, our Father in heaven, are like, what you are like in your Trinitarian glory, the one God and three persons. I pray, Lord, that you would just speak to us. Lord, we may not fully understand these things, but I pray that we will believe them and see them, as it were, and believe them with clarity in our spirits. We ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, we're going to talk about God is one, and we're going to read Ephesians 4, verses 4 to 6. I think that's going to go up on the screen for you. It's a very short uh, passage. Paul writing says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. That's pretty amazing in itself, what he says there. Amazing words, revelation. Um, Let's start with a story. You probably might have heard me say this before because I think it's a great illustration of what we're going to do in the next half hour or so. In 1492, Christopher Columbus set sail from uh, Europe across the Atlantic and he really wasn't sure where he was going. He was aiming to find a way to what we call Asia, and they probably called India, to the Indies. He was aiming to find a way to go, I think he had an idea the globe was round, which was useful, but to get there from the other way, to get to the western side of Asia. And so after many weeks of sailing across the Atlantic Ocean, that's pretty courageous, all this stuff, they saw three beautiful green islands on the horizon. And that was a relief because it's land. So they sailed closer and closer. And the closer they got, they realized it wasn't three islands. It was one island. One big, beautiful green island with three mountains of similar size. And Columbus named that land, that island, Trinidad, which is the Spanish, was the Spanish in his time, for the word Trinity. So he called the island Trinity because it had so impacted him. These three that looked from a distance, separate green island. And as you got close, they were one gorgeous island covered in tropical growth. And uh, that's part of what they called the West Indies because they thought they were into Asia. Of course, it was a fair bit further to go before you get to Asia as we now know. So Trinidad had in it something which is quite precious and it's a, to me it's a sort of, the name had, to me it's a sort of illustration of what we do. We often start off thinking, well, okay, Jesus, God, God the Holy Spirit, God the Father, how does this work? And the closer you get, the more you see, oh, it's one God, three persons. Oh, it does work. Oh, it is amazing. Now, the doctrine of the Trinity is what distinguishes Christianity, particularly from the two other great monotheistic religions of Judaism and Islam. 
And actually, it brings division to some degree with those religions, not deliberately, not to cause trouble, but often there is a negative reaction, both from uh, those of the Judaistic and Islamic background, about the Trinity. Uh, And it is, therefore, an awkward doctrine in that sense, in many other ways as well. But to deny the Trinity is a sign usually of heresy, and it's a sign of sex and cults down through the ages. So, for example, in our day, Jehovah Witnesses deny that the Bible teaches the deity of Jesus, of Jesus Christ, that he was God, and they talk of the Holy Spirit as a force rather than a person of the Trinity. Now, that isn't a new problem. That is an ancient heresy. It was called Arianism, and it first emerged in the 3rd century. People have always struggled with the idea of the Trinity. Even Christians will struggle to explain it. Some say that the Son and the Spirit are just part of God, or that God is like like I am. I can be a a husband. I'm a husband to Marion. I'm a father to my children. I'm a pastor to the church. You know, I'm one person. I can have these different roles, different hats. No, that is not right. Some would still call the Holy Spirit more like a force or an it, perhaps not unintentionally. They don't talk personally about him. That's not right either. Others talk of Jesus as a God-filled man. No, that's not really the right way to describe him. It's not right. Or talk of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit like three gods working together on a project. That's not right. Mormons tend to do that. That's not right. That's uh, bordering on heresy. And actually, it's quite hard. It's easy to say what it shouldn't be, but it's quite hard to define what it is. That has always been the tussle. And, uh, of course, the argument often is, well, the word Trinity isn't in the Bible, which is true. It's not. It's a doctrine to try and explain massive truths that are in the Bible that are clear and that are awesome and that are almost beyond our understanding. Because what we're doing when we look at the Trinity, God is giving us an insight into his being. Get that word in your head. The being of God. Now, everything living has a being. You've got a being, I've got. We're human beings. And uh, for us, person Identity is very individualistic. You know, it's one person, one being, one person. I'm one human being, I'm one person. And if I don't think like that or act like that, I'm probably, there's something wrong with me, sad about me. So I am one person, one being. It's very much being a human being. But there are other things with being. A dog has a being. Very different from our being. It's reasonably close in some areas. We and dogs can have quite an affinity, but it's a huge gap. I guess if a dog was in here, this place would be full of smells. Full, and maybe it is for you, I hope not, but it'd be <laughs> full of... Se- His world is just full of things that his nose picks up, but for us, wouldn't notice them, and his ears. So there's a different being. Now, if you go down the scale, a tree has a being, and a tree's being is very different. A tree stays in one, maybe hundreds of years old, 500 years old. I saw a tree in the new forest that was planted, I don't know, back in the time of Queen Elizabeth. It's amazing. It's been in that one place all that time, and it can't move. Now, the difference between your being and a tree's being is pretty big, but at none of that, is like the gap between your being and my being and God. God is, is God. And his being is very different. And he has shown us that he is one being and three persons. He has shown us that. We rely on his revelation to make that clear to us. 
And early on, in the very early days, the Christians made creeds to make clear what they believed. It's a very early creed. The Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, and the Holy Spirit is Lord. And yet there are not three lords, but one Lord. And those are truths that you have to hold. Let me, I put it like this, this is a, go up on the screen. Seven simple truths the Bible teaches. I'm just going to read them, don't worry, these aren't preaching points. Seven simple truths the Bible teaches. If you could put that one up, thank you. Sorry, this one has one. Okay, God the Father is God. God the Son is God. God the Holy Spirit is God. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. Nevertheless, there is only one God. Amen? Simple, profound, hard to understand. But that is what the Bible teaches. If we can put this up, Martin Lloyd-Jones made this quote, which sums up a point very well about the Trinity. No doctrine shows more clearly our absolute dependence upon the revelation we have in Scripture. The doctrine of the Trinity comes directly from the Bible. Men and women have thought of God... They have their gods, but no one has ever thought of the Trinity. Now, he's got a point. It just wouldn't have been thought up by a human mind because a human mind struggles to get around it. It is not a philosophical, easy, easy thing to do. You can delve into it once you hear about it, but it's, it's not something you can imagine someone thinking up. It's part of the awesome otherness of God. And even though it risks us causing confusion or even offence to people, we have to stand firm on the doctrine of the Trinity because the Christian faith actually stands and falls on the truths in this doctrine. If the only, it's only, I beg your pardon, if God, the one true God, is triune, that what the Bible teaches, and we'll see this a bit more in a minute, about personhood and personality and relationships and love, those things can only have sense if this doctrine is true. And actually, it is only if the Trinity is true, this doctrine, this understanding is true, that the gospel really works and really makes sense. Jim Packer said, those who deny the Trinity have to scale down the gospel, and they do. If you deny the Trinity, you scale down the gospel. So how did it come about? Well, very simple, really. The people writing the New Testament saw stuff and knew it was true. They had revelation and they had experience that drew the inescapable conclusion of what we call the Trinity, that there is one God, three persons who are God, God the Son, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit. They, the writers of the New Testament, the first early church, were experiential Trinitarians before they ever put pen to paper. Now remember that. This is not a doctrine dreamt up philosophically. It's not a doctrine dreamt up in some uh, uh, sort of, uh, I don't know, council, consultation together. No, no, no. People had revelation and understanding and experience of God, and they wrote about it. And later, in defending aspects of it, such as people who said Jesus wasn't God or the Holy Spirit wasn't God, in defending aspects of it, the church, if you like, devised 
a definition like we've been seeing. These are what's true. This is the doctrine. But the people who wrote the New Testament were experiencing those truths. Let me briefly just give you a little touch of how you can't escape this truth if you genuinely, genuinely read the Bible. We're going to just look briefly at the word Lord for a moment. It'll be very brief. So the first thing I'd like to put up is the Lord God, the phrase the Lord God. In the Old Testament, God is predominantly called the Lord. The governor, the owner, the master. That's what it means, the one overall, the master, the owner. Time and again, that is put unequivocally to Israel. Let's look at one. Deuteronomy 6.4, we'll go up. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's very clear. One God, the Lord Almighty, the creator, the ruler, the owner, the judge, of the whole earth, the judge of the universe. And again and again, God makes that very clear. I am the Lord. There is no other. Let's go to another phrase, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this Old Testament monotheism, this Old Testament view of God as Lord is actually reinforced in the New Testament. It's not avoided. So quickly we'll look at two verses where Jesus makes it very clear. He's answering a question. What's the most important? Come on. The most important one answered Jesus is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And then another reference from Jesus, John 5. How can you believe since you accept glory for one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God, or the only one, the margin will expand that. Jesus was very clear, there's only one God and one Lord. The writers of the New Testament, next screen, a couple of little quick verses. Here's Paul writing to the Romans. Since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised with the same faith, and he goes on with a point, just says it in passing. Galatians 3, a mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. So they are very clear... Jesus and the New Testament writers, God is one. But let's think about the Lord Jesus Christ, the phrase that is so often used for Jesus. Again and again, the term used for the Old Testament for God, the Lord, the master, the the owner, is actually in the New Testament attributed to Jesus. And it's more often used of the Lord Jesus and the one to whom Jesus prayed was Father. So we get the Father, God the Father is more what's uh, the terminology and the thinking for God, if you like, the one God when they're talking like that and praying like that. And actually the term Lord is used repeatedly for Jesus. And actually, and if I had the time, I'd love to take you to these, you can find innumerable uh, uh, quotations in the New Testament where references to the Lord God and prophecies about the Lord God are directly fulfilled in Jesus Christ and are attributed to Jesus. So where it says the Lord, whether it's from Isaiah or something else, the Lord would do that. That's interpreted when Jesus does it. In other words, Jesus is the Lord God and the Lord God doing these things. They pray to Jesus and Jesus receives worship. He is clearly God and given divine attributes. The truth then that comes through is that Jesus Christ is Lord. Okay? With me? 
Right, stay with me because you're on to the third one. The Lord, the Spirit. This is another one to blow the fuse in your brain box. Put up 2 Corinthians 3, 1 to 18, please. Well, not 1 to 18. I think that's the wrong number, but don't worry. A couple of verses is. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is... Now, just get that phrase. Don't gloss over it. The Lord is the Spirit. Remember, you're holding this word Lord with a capital L. The Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled faces, contemplate the Lord's glory. And we are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. You with me? You're probably struggling. I'm struggling, but I believe it. So the Lord God, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Lord, who is the Spirit. One Lord. Three persons who are all God, the Lord. Amen? It's magnificent stuff. And a little PS on this one. The word holy is attributed again and again to God in the Old Testament. It's a big title for God. Holy meaning his goodness, the goodness of God. But interestingly, in the New Testament, that title is mostly used for the Spirit, as you'll know, the Holy Spirit. Rarely is it used about Jesus or the Father. You don't have that title particularly attributed very often to the Father of Jesus, but lots of times the Holy Spirit. It's almost like God deliberately is ringing the chain saying, this is all me, (laughs) this is all the Holy Lord, and I want you to get it, says the Lord. And so there are all sorts of things that reinforce this with the Holy Spirit. Masculine pronoun used when Greek uh, uh, grammar would almost say you shouldn't use it. To make the point, he's a person. Titles like counselor, advocate, helper. He has intelligence. He has emotions. He has will. He responds to us. Most of the actions ascribed to the Holy Spirit are the actions of a person. He is clearly a person. And Jesus links himself, the Son, the Father, the Spirit together in several ways, most notably in the Great Commission to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And sometimes the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Jesus. Have you noticed that? Or Christ in you. We're dealing with the same God. Now, actually, let it get into your head, but let it get into your spirit. Because when the Holy Spirit is in you and working in you, you get the full works. That's God in you. That's Christ in you. Amen. Is that not good? This is not just a force, the force be with you. We're into real Christianity. This is a person who's there with you. The person whose character is totally in harmony with Jesus because it is the spirit of Jesus. It is Christ in you. He is the Lord the Spirit. Wow. That's good, isn't it? I think it's good. It's wonderful, wonderful stuff. Now, this doctrine, as I said, is very, very important. It's the basis of the gospel, but it's also very instructive for us about us as human beings, which is a little bit behind the title, Reflections of Glory. Um, Sam Albury is an excellent little book on the, on the Trinity called Connections. And in that, Sam Albury says this, the Trinity is not just the key for understanding God, it is vital for understanding ourselves. And that is a wonderful fact because God has made us in his image. 
And so this whole thing, this morning we'll try and keep focused, that God is one God and three persons, is very, very important about us and our relationship, not only with God, but with each other. Now, if God is what many people want to say is, and actually, if you like, what Islam would say was, that there's one person not three persons, and one God, and that don't try and mess with that. It's a highly developed individual. He is, the, not developed, sorry, is the, he is the eternal individual. And if that is true, we would have problems with the nature of God. And so I want to just take a few minutes, and this is the bit where it applies to us, to look at some of the problems if God is not Trinity. All right, if God is not three persons. Let's talk about the first one. A problem with the personal nature of God. If God is one person and one being, but he is still the one uncreated eternal God, then actually we have got problems with his personhood or our own personhood because he, have, he would have no existing relationships before he created us. So he doesn't really understand personal relationships because he is one monolithic being. And he then at some point in created time and created us. And actually that's when he's learning about relationships and personhood. And he wouldn't understand it before that. But the fact is, the truth is, that God knows full well about personal relationships because in his being there is a wonderful, intimate relationship between Father, Son and Holy Spirit. God made us with the ability to have relationships because he's got it in spades, if I can use that, not irreverently. He understands more about relationships than you ever, ever will. Don't you ever think, oh, God doesn't understand what it's like. God knows about relationship things you will never know, probably throughout eternity. God made us with the potential to be persons who can be in relationship with one another, can communicate with one another, can be in harmony, can love one another. We'll get to that in a moment. Because he made us in his image. And he has it for all eternity been a blissful harmony of loving relationships. He fully is able to understand it. In fact, as I said, he made us in his image. God has always, always through eternity had the traits that make for good relationships. Faithfulness, honesty, openness between one and another, mutual respect, righteousness, love. God has had that in himself from eternity. And he imparts it to us, partly through creation, and restores it through the new creation that Jesus has brought. Hallelujah. If God is just this one monolithic being, there's a problem with love. That's the next one. There's a problem with love. Because love requires something or someone to love. In isolation, as an isolated being, other than self-love, I don't know if I can understand that. There is no, love isn't like that. Love always has a, an object that you sacrifice, serve, love. And actually, God is love, is love. He understands love. He is love because in himself, there is a loving harmony between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
there is an eternal characteristic of God which is real love, agape love. Love that is not self-centered but is centered on another person. God understands, indeed he has in his being that profoundly. And he imparts the potential to us. It's been scarred and damaged by sin. It can be restored through Jesus. Praise God. But actually, God in himself, which is where we are this morning, is love. He knows how love works. He knows completely how it works. What mutual love is, where you put the other person first and where you serve one another That is what love is. Love is not what the television tells you it is. It's not what the media tells you it is. It's not what philosophy tells you what it is. Love is only what God reveals he's like and tells us. Love must involve putting others before yourself. There is no other form of legitimacy to that word love. That is how it is. Because that's how the Trinity works. Love is not self-serving, it's other-serving. We just get a a little hint of it in some of the scriptures, which I haven't got time to turn to because I've got to watch the time. But in the way the Father and the Son work together, I I don't think I put these up. Uh, It was my mistake, nobody else's. (laughs) My PA didn't do anything wrong. Um, But uh, I've got a wonderful PA who can do all these technical things for me that I can't do. It's Marion, my wife, don't worry. I'm not winking at somebody else's wife. Um, (laughs) John 3, verse 35. Now, I'll just give you a taste of a couple of them. The Father loves the... Listen to this. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. See, that's how the Father's love for the Son works. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything into his hands. Giving, trusting, allowing the Son to have all responsibility. Here's Jesus, John 14. He comes... I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Hear that? We've just read that the Father has given... Isn't this beautiful? This is how love works. Please listen to truth. Don't listen to lies. Okay? Just get... This is love at its pure source. So we've just read, The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Then we read, I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. So who's in charge? Who cares in love? Do you see what I mean? The the love is a mutual serving and honoring and loving. And we could go on and we could say a few other things. I might say one because it's not very far away. Let's just look at, at another verse. Jesus says this, When he, the spirit of truth, comes, he, the spirit of truth, he will guide you into all truth. Now listen to this. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. He will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive and make known to you. So listen, there we've got the Holy Spirit, God, and he's not coming interested particularly in glorifying himself. He's glorifying the Son and he's not speaking on his own. He speaks only what, presumably, the Father, you could by implication, what he hears and the Father gives him. They work in harmony. This is a wonderful demonstration of real love. Now, if God's not a trinity, thirdly, there is a problem with individualism. Let's hold this for a moment. God would be, if he's not Trinitarian, if he's, if he's one person, one God, monolithic, 
God would be the ultimate individualist. The ultimate individualist that needs only himself, doesn't need anybody else, doesn't particularly find it easy to handle anybody else and really is in sublime, perfect uh, peace in his own individualness. Okay? God's not like that. But we quite like that idea. We quite like the idea of hyper-individualism and distorting our views of freedom today to almost think freedom is freedom to be only what I want to be in my way with no regard for anybody else. Now, actually, that's a bit harsh, but it's going that way. We think it's the height of delight to be able to have the freedom economically or other ways to do exactly what I want only when I want to do it with absolutely nobody else and I don't really have to pay much heed to what others want. That is not freedom. That is not even proper humanity. That is not how God is and it's not how we're meant to be. Far from that being a wonderful thing to aspire to, it's a sin to repent of. That is not how we're made. God isn't like that. God is not a hyper-individual. God is a community. That the center of everything in the universe is a community. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Relationships, things we've been seeing, are crucial to how everything works in the universe. How the universe was made They worked as a trinity. The Holy Spirit was hovering over the waters. We get hints of it. Genesis 1.1. We hear that that Jesus was involved in creation. And, And of course the Father spoke the words. But they worked together on the creation project. It wasn't one monolithic individual just deciding what he'd fancy to do today. It was teamwork. Right at the heart of the universe is a team. Isn't that amazing? Right at the heart of the universe is a community. And actually, real persons only really operate in community. Hear that? That's how God is. Real persons. To be a whole person, you need other persons. Every one of us do, including me, yes. And it's not always comfortable because we're a bit distorted by sin and we're not God. But actually, to, to be whole, you need others. Now, I'm not saying in any particular, this is not just a pitch for something. Don't mishear me if you come from a, a thing, oh, is he going to say we've all got to be married or something daft like that? I'm talking much bigger than that. I'm talking community. I'm talking people. I'm talking relationships. We need other people. All of us do. We can't be whole and complete without others. Our divisions, our discord, our hyper-individualism is a manifestation of sin, not of something good. Now, in later talks, we will try and apply this a little bit more precisely to family life or to church life. But here's the big one. Let's keep it in our hearts. Let's look at one last one. If God is one monolithic being, then there is a problem with unity and diversity. In other words, that the two could go together. You see, he would have nothing to teach us or to even help us with in terms of how do we hold it together and be united if we're different from one another. If there's diversity, can there be unity? Well, God says, yes, look at me. God, three in one, is the ultimate example of that. There is a diversity between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and yet there is a total unity between them. There is also absolute equality in being between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They're all co-equal, co-eternal, 
They are God. But there are actually different roles, different jobs. They are complementary. That isn't the word, obviously, being nice to each other and saying you've got a nice hat or something. But that is that they, they work together to make a whole. Not many people have hats. So they tell us my age. So I, ha- I need a hat a lot, so I think hats. Right. Digression. So... So this is an important, it's really important actually. It's important for lots of things. There's one God, but he exists as three persons. Now each member of the Godhead is equally God and fully God and equal in essence as God, but each one has a distinct personal expression of the undivided nature of God. And it isn't interchangeable. They don't wake up morning and say, who's going to be father today then? Who's going to try and be dad today then? Do you want to have a go, Holy Spirit? I've been doing it for a millennium. You have a go. They'll toss a coin. Who'll be the son today then of us three? This is not what it is. Now hear me because we think a bit like this. This is a pretty important thing to get. The differences in roles of the three persons of the Godhead do not mean they are unequal and they are not parallel to their equality. Each person of the Godhead plays a different part within the divine economy, complementary, and there is a shape to their relationship which is eternal. The Father has eternally been the Father, the Son has eternally been the Son, and the Spirit has eternally been the Spirit. Now this is profound for us. It's profound for the battles of 21st century Britain, probably, at Western world and possibly the world. The whole issue of equality, the whole issue of diversity and unity, how does it work? Well, you have to look at God to see how it works properly. You're not going to find out from humanism. You're not going to find out from evolution. You're not going to find out from plasticity about sexuality. Those are not the answers to how we deal with this. And it's not about hierarchy. There's not a hierarchy. It's about understanding the unity and diversity and the equality within the Trinity. Because, you see, let's give you one example, which is quite common. In Western culture, two people are only considered equal if they are allowed to do exactly the same thing. So in our culture, we now would say two people are only equal if they are allowed to do exactly the same thing. Now, that might be a simplification, but that is the bottom line of where a lot of equality talk goes. Now, I don't want us to be squeezed into a mould where we can't talk about equality without talking. I don't want it on the world's terms. I want it on God's terms. I'm happy to talk about equality, mutual love, respect, honouring, and giving room for one another, all the lovely biblical concepts, but I don't want it on the world's terms, please. Equality is not exactly the same for everybody doing exactly the same thing because that's not how the Trinity works. That's not how God works. Equality is not sameness. It's not uniformity. It's unity within diversity. That's how humanity is and it's how God is. The different roles being exercised by the three persons of the Godhead, who we know and love, all play a vital part in not only creation and sustaining creation, but in salvation. And it is a glorious, wonderful thing. Now, I know I've put out a few feelers there, that things you might want to think about. But I don't want us to end this morning, and we're coming towards the end because we're going to break bread, getting too knotted up in the detail.
I'm not turning from it. I'm just saying, let's be careful. What you're meant to do with the Trinity is look at the truth God shows you, worship him, love him, thank him for what he's done in his triune, wonderful being, and then let that somehow filter into your spirit. Let that get into you. Let the Holy Spirit teach you what that means for your salvation, what it means for who you are in Christ, what it means for your relationship with him and his with you, what it means then for your relationship with other Christians, with other human beings, what it means for you as a human being made in his image. All of that is sort of cascades out of it. But you start with worshipping him. Amen? You start with just focusing on him. This isn't about, uh, uh, if you like, uh, an intellectual exercise. It's about something in the spirit. And uh, I'm going to finish by reading something. I think it's Sam Albury. I just thought this is great, so I'm just reading it as it is. So I hope it makes sense to you. And then we'll have the band up and begin to worship. The gospel says that there was in God from eternity mutuality of life and joy. And that men and women were made to share this fellowship. That when sin had made this impossible, God came in person the second person, sent by the first person and empowered by the third person. He came to save us. That God made flesh, died for us, lives for us, unites us to himself and brings us to God the Father now and will take us one day to share his glory. That a divine guest, the Holy Spirit, indwells each Christian to prompt prayer, to transform our fallen nature, and that Jesus Christ is a companion and friend to every single believer, giving him or her a constant, undistracted attention. It is surely obvious that none of these marvellous, almost fantastic things could be said save on the supposition that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one God. In other words, that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's marvellous, isn't it? We're going to worship him. Can I have the band up, please? Let's just, uh, while they're coming up, let's just sort of settle ourselves. Let me stand so that I can uh, pray. Let's pray. So I don't want us to distract just as the band. It will take a few minutes. But we're going to worship God, and we're going to take bread and wine in about five or ten minutes. And I want us, there's lots of stuff there that, that genuinely should provoke your thought. That's great. But some of those thoughts need to be left for lunchtime. We need to worship. We need to say, Lord, we believe you are what you've showed us to be. Let's just record together as we stand before him that the Lord God is one God, only one. Jesus is the Lord. <laughs> God is made flesh. The Spirit is the Lord. The Spirit's presence is God with us. The Spirit of Jesus, Christ in you. It's pretty good stuff. Lord, we believe it. Lord, we freely admit we struggle at times to understand it. But we know by experience it's truth. We have found you to be as you have revealed yourself, a father who loves us, 
the Son who understands us and who has drawn us into the Father's presence through a new and living way he made in his own body, in his own real body, real death and real resurrection. And now, Lord, you're with us even this morning by your Spirit. You who can be everywhere, yes, are here. The Lord is here.